Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Time to take a break from things Russians, things political, things everything, and journey with me back to the 13th century. Now, this has actually never been tried in radio history before to talk about the 13th century in the 21st century or the 20th century, for that matter. But in the 100 years of radio, there are always frontiers to cross over, and one of them is an in-depth study of the 13th century, especially of Thomas Aquinas. And joining me in doing that, of course, it is the Hillsdale Hour, the Hillsdale Dialogue. This is the last radio week, hour of the week. I always spend it with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College and one or more of his colleagues. This week and next, and who knows for how long, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Lee Cole, who is in his third year teaching philosophy at Hillsdale College. He did his B.A. at Hillsdale. He got his master's from Villanova. His dissertation is on Thomas Aquinas uh, from Villanova. We're not going to hold it against him. He doesn't know anything about basketball because he is a wildcat. But he is, in fact, an Aquinas expert. And uh, if you go to Rate My Professor, I, I find this hard to believe, Dr. Larry Arn. Your Hillsdale students actually love uh, Professor Cole and his, uh, his classes on Aquinas. Of course they do. What are you talking about? Well, <laughs> I, I approach this with no little fear and trepidation, as well you know. I've never been an Aquinas guy. Oh, come on. So, first of all, Aquinas is much more common sense than Augustine, whom for some reason you were wild about. Well, Confessions is a fun book to read. Summa has never struck me in the same vein. Yeah, okay. Well, you haven't read it right. But, no. but Lee and I are going to help you with that. I should tell you about Lee, by the way. Please when do. Lee was a student. He and his now wife were, were signal people in our honors program. And the first weekend that I was president of Hillstock College, they're gathering back for school, and there's a traffic accident. And I, and I leave church uh, hearing about it to discover that a bunch of our kids are hurt and there's bloody kids everywhere. And then I hear that one of them had his head crushed under the edge of a – and I think, my God, what kind of – what am I doing here? This is crazy. And this person who had his head crushed is Professor Cole. And two things develop from this. The first is – his academic record is a lot better since he got his head crushed. <laughs> but, but the second one is Kelly Hines of the day spent three weeks hardly getting any sleep, getting all, getting, making sure all the wounded kids got their books and their homework assignments. And, of course, that's when Lee Cole fell for her. And now they have 14 children or something. How many, how many kids you got, Lee? It's close. You'd have to take off the first one, so four. Four uh, children. I could come home and there could be a fifth or a sixth. I never know. Professor yeah. Cole, you met your bride-to-be uh, while you were recovering from this uh, accident? I did. I think they call that, what, a Florence Nightingale syndrome or something like that? Uh, uh, that is terrific. That's wonderful. But what's not wonderful is that you obviously have an Aquinas addiction. And I want you to, I want you <laughs> uh, to start by telling people how that developed. Okay, I can do that. Now, now this is going to complicate, complicate your uh, Augustinian Thomistic narrative here because my Aquinas addiction developed at Villanova University, which is the preeminent Augustinian university in North America. Yes. Um, so I was there and I was studying the history of philosophy. Uh, I was actually studying a lot of 19th and 20th century figures, uh, Martin Heidegger, Edmund Husserl, Merleau-Ponty, people like that. And uh, in the process, we finally hired a Thomist, which we should have done, I guess, years earlier. And um, having read enough Aristotle, I could approach Aquinas with a new appreciation. I'd studied a little Aquinas at Hillsdale College. But it wasn't really until I studied Aristotle 
under the direction of Helen Lang, my first two years in grad school, then I can approach the Summa and it really opened up for me. And then I really took five uh, medieval courses near the tail end of my graduate career. So I was making up for lost time and spent uh, spent the last, I'd say, six years thinking alongside Aquinas. Now, um, I have to have you both help me at this point. I have got program directors across the country divided. They, they argue over this segment. Some love it and some loathe it. They say, you know, the people who love it and the fans who love it can't wait. They download it. They listen to it repeatedly. And those who hate it don't give it a shot. So let's talk to those who hate it. Why should they care about Thomas Aquinas, a monk from the 13th century, born in Italy, uh, did most of his work in Paris. We'll cover his life in a little bit, but, but I'll go to you, Lee Cole. Why ought even the most skeptical radio guy or gal believe that this is important? Well, I'd hope even in the business of radio, we wouldn't be above caring about what's true. And if you care about what's true, uh, Aquinas is as good of a resource as any at getting at that. Um, Aquinas is an, has, uh, is an incredibly uh, profound thinker who remains timeless insofar as he cares about what is real. Um, and there's a real uh, breadth and depth and accessibility to his work um, that I think you find in very few other philosophers. And I, I agree that there's something kind of immediately alienating when we approach his text, but I think, you know, giving him a month or two and with the proper guidance, the text sort of opens itself up for you. And then it becomes a sort of uh, a wonderful castle of uh, treasures. Breadth, depth and accessibility. I'll give you two out of three. Yes, we might scare quote the last one <laughs> yeah, a little bit. That's what I'm going to. That's what I'm going to. Dr. Larry Arn, you, you know that when we originally set up the outline for the dialogue, I wanted to skip. From the 4th century to the 16th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he thought, uh, Hugh actually thought that the number 4 is followed by the number 16. 16. <laughs> so if, so let, me, let me take a stab at that, by the way. Please. So two things in the news, right? One you, you just mentioned. At the closing ceremony at the Olympics, the head of the International Olympic Committee said in his speech, roughly, that Putin and Russia had proved in the last two weeks that they're for peace and concord and unity and blah, blah, right? Yes. And the Olympics styles itself as a classical movement. And that is a hypocrisy that is beyond any estimating. And the whole thing that the political cast of the thing was nothing but self-serving. So first of all, freedom itself is belittled by free people and people not free. The second thing is this week, the pre according to AP, the Associated Press today, the president of the University of Iowa is apologizing because she gave a interview to the college paper and they're worried about sexual assault. And she said that she hoped to get to a time when sexual assault could be eliminated, but human nature being what it is, maybe she couldn't get it completely eliminated. And now here's the astonishing end of this story. There was outrage on the campus that she has mentioned human nature as if there is such a thing, and she has apologized and said she didn't mean to cause anybody any hurt by mentioning such a conception. Now, if wow. you want to understand about nature, that is to say the nature under which it would be wrong to assault another human being sexually, and if there is no nature, then that is not wrong— then Thomas Aquinas is a timely subject. That, that is, I was going to 
to bring up as an intro story as well, Anderson Cooper's reporting from the Yale Baby Lab, where they now discover infants as young as three months old can distinguish between good and bad. And they've repeated this again and again. And by one year, it's a no-brainer. And that would not surprise anyone who believes in the natural law, would it, Professor Cole? No, I don't think so. I mean, Aquinas' view on this is pretty sophisticated because he has a strong conception of nurture in addition to his conception of nature. Um, But at the very basic level, he would say that we need um, principles of practical reasoning. And if there's not some um, fundamental sense in which we can intuit right and wrong, then there's really no starting point for moral inquiry. Uh, So at the very least, the, the, the principle of do good and avoid evil becomes apparent to us and is a necessary condition for morality in the same way that the rule of contradiction, you can't have the have A and not A at the same time in the same place, is a requirement of just having rational discourse. Now, I also want to begin, this may take us through the break, Dr. When we began talking about Thomas Aquinas, you said you've got to go off and read Chesterton's Aquinas. And not only have I, I've fallen into this book. It is a Wonderful book. You said it was an essay. It's 600 pages on Kindle, but it is a it is a marvelous 600 pages. And and so you tricked me. And that's I'm used to that now. But do you begin all of your students with Chesterton on Aquinas as a way of baiting the hook? Uh, I I anytime I talk to any student about Aquinas and I don't teach Aquinas here except in the course of teaching Aristotle, which I do, I always direct them to that. But but uh, Lee teaches courses on Aquinas. What do you do, Lee? I don't actually use that text. I, I don't discourage that people read it, and I think it's a really a fantastic text for capturing the spirit of Thomas Aquinas. Um, I do have my students read introductory works on the side to give them a sense of Aquinas and his life. Uh, I, I usually assign uh, a work by Fergus Carr, a very short introduction to Aquinas, who's well, a Scottish Dominican, and that, that does the job and it has a little bit more historical detail than Chesterton's. But Chesterton's work is unmatched in terms of its rhetorical beauty, and it really, it's loved by many an educated Thomas. When we come back, we'll talk about both. Don't go anywhere, America. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, Thomas Aquinas, part one. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. And for all of you who have ever been afraid of Thomas Aquinas, this is the the series of weeks that you want to listen to in the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm joined, of course, by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and by his colleague, Professor Lee Cole, who teaches Aquinas there. And, uh, and we will be doing this for a number of weeks. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, dating back to the beginning of last year, and Homer, uh, are available at HughForHillsdale.com. They're all downloadable. They're all accessible. They have all been transcribed, by the way, at HughHewitt.com on the transcription page. And uh, if you want to begin at the beginning, by all means do, or simply go to Hillsdale.edu for every online offering from the college. Uh, Lee Cole, when we went to break, you were talking about Fergus Carr, and I want to I want to pause for a moment for those who find it easiest, and I'm among them, to enter into any philosophy first through biography. What... Uh, Chesterton said of Aquinas, which I wrote down as the one quote I would give, an acute observer said of Thomas Aquinas in his own time, quote, he could alone restore all philosophy if it had been burnt by fire. That's quite a statement. Is it, in your view, accurate? Well, that is a very optimistic and provocative statement. Um, 
And I think insofar as it could be true of anyone, it could be true of someone like an Aquinas and someone like an Aristotle. I mean, there are a few people in human history that have an almost unparalleled grasp of really all knowledge that's available to them at that time. And that's really, that's become a kind of ideal that I don't think we can realize anymore because um, knowledge has grown so specialized. But that's really one of Aquinas's great contributions. I usually tell my students, Aquinas is not um, the most uh, creative thinker ever. Uh, he's not the most novel thinker, thinker ever. But nonetheless, there's something kind of creative about his ability to synthesize the tradition. So I think he's best understood as a kind of custodian who's able to bring together pagan philosophy um, uh, Jewish and Islamic reflection upon God, and then, of course, centrally, uh, the Christian reflection upon God and upon nature. And he's able to see their points of convergence precisely because he has such a deep insight into um, uh, the natural world, the human being, and God, about whom all of these conversations are um, taking place. Uh, so um, in that sense, uh, Aquinas does have a kind of mastery over the whole that you'll that you really, that's really unsurpassed, I think, in any other thinker, even if you could find approximations. Now, and for you, Dr. Arne, I penciled out one quote as a provo uh, provocation from a, a Chesterton. The saint is a medicine because he is an antidote. Indeed, that is why the saint is often a martyr. He is mistaken for a poison because he is an antidote. He will generally be found restoring the world to sanity by exaggerating whatever the world neglects, which is by no means always the same element in every age, yet each generation seeks its saint by instinct, and he is not what the people want, but rather what the people need. So my, my, my question to you is, A, uh, what does that mean referencing Aquinas, and B, who ought that to apply to today? Well, that, it's like that story about the president from the University of Iowa. We actually believe today that nothing is true Remember that 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 statement reads both positively and negatively, yep. right? And that our freedom is protected by that fact because there's nothing to restrain us from doing whatever we want, right? We think that today. And that means that we reject systematically the doctrine in the Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and of nature's God. In, 19, in 2006, in the book Audacity of Hope, the following sentence occurs. Uh, implicit in the Constitution structure in the very idea of ordered liberty is the rejection of absolute truth, right? Now, as a statement about the Constitution of the United States, written by James Madison, friend of Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence with its laws of nature and of nature's God, that's raw foolishness yep. and contradiction and, in my opinion, also dangerous. Well, there's no place to stand if... Ukraine and Russia are in engulfed in war this weekend. I mean, not, not merely saber-rattling or a little conflagration, but, I mean, engulfed in war. Who's to say Russia was wrong uh, to begin it? I mean, if you don't have a place to stand. They, 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 in other words, it is a denial. See, here, here's Thomas's Aquinas' account of the human being. It's, it's like Aristotle's account, except it's, it's Christian. And that's a very important fact that we'll have to talk about. His account is, you have some capacity in you that is like the capacity of God, 
And that capacity lets you see things as they are, to see specifically the good in things, to know the good in things, and, and to long naturally for it. Now, you don't always do that good. And when you don't, you're embarrassed. What this modern doctrine does is it takes away the embarrassment. There isn't anything that stands outside you that you can know that judges what you do. And, you know, the, the classic philosophers and the medieval philosophers, especially Thomas Aquinas, they're very well aware that human beings are capable of great evil and always, to some extent, are doing evil, but they don't lose sight of the fact that the good can be known and points to God. And so this, this work that, a, that Aquinas does, it's, it's very powerful because one of the things it does is it, it, it lays a foundation in reason for the operation of the faith. And, you know, that, he didn't lay that anew. That was there. God, you know, to, we read Augustine, and Augustine says, uh, the creator would not hate the faculty he gave us that, it, that makes us like him. But that gets developed in Aquinas into a structure of understanding that's just a monument, just now, huge. Now, before we begin to move there by virtue of laying out the 13th century, let me just ask about the president of the University of Iowa. Did anyone ask the president that if you are against sexual harassment, you cannot also be against the idea of human nature? Did anyone raise the problem? Yeah, well, remember, this is, uh, it would be foolish of me to insult the world of radio, but I'm replying to those people you say who don't like this segment because they think, I don't know what they think, but but this is a world that is deracinated way beyond any world of popular culture. This is a world in which it's a doctrine that there isn't any truth, and that is thought to be the source of freedom. And this, and this, Hugh, this is a contemporary problem, but it's also a problem that dates back well before Thomas Aquinas. How I mean, so? This is, this is kind of a Greek philosophy 101 in that when I introduce my students to Plato, we start by considering a group of thinkers known as the sophists. And the, thought, and the sophists more or less, for the most part, I mean, not all of them, but many of them really think that um, justice, nature, and so on are mere constructs. They're conventions of society. Basically, human beings are innately selfish. We, we would like to take each other's stuff and kill each other. But of course, we always find ourselves outnumbered. So we enter into a kind of political contract so that we don't kill each other. And then we pay uh, presidents and rulers and uh, police officers to make sure we don't kill one another. But at the end of the day, um, what counts as right and wrong is really what we just agree to as part of our political political contract. And um, Plato pres provides the first most sort of comprehensive to response to that, that there really is such a thing as uh, the nature of, the, of things, and there really is such a thing as the good. And um, if there isn't, it's all might makes right. And that, and that infects even the way we think about rhetoric, because rhetoric just becomes the most subtle form of the, the stronger preying upon the weaker. We'll be right back with the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, part one of the Hillsdale Dialogue's treatment of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, joining us in this effort, Dr. Larry Arn, professor, uh, I mean, president of Hillsdale College, Professor Lee Cole of Hillsdale College, their Aquinas scholar there, who is at work on his dissertation on Aquinas out of Wildcat Land at Villanova. Uh, professor Cole, uh, I'd like you, if you could, to set up 
the start of the 13th century, keeping in mind that we have Steelers fans, Wolverines, and Trojans listening, and they will think <laughs> that the 13th century or the 1300s. In fact, the 13th century begins in 1200. What's the lay of the land? The, the timeline, you, you begin with an optimistic thing, the charter of the University of Paris. And so somebody somewhere thinks something is worth learning in 1200. Yeah, it's a, this is a really interesting time in the, in the West. Um, it's actually the case, it helps to, to back up just a little bit. When, when a number of people from the Jewish and Islamic world were traveling uh, to Europe, even in the 12th century, they came back and reported that Europe was basically uh, what they would call a kind of latrine compared to um, what they were used to in the Middle East and North Africa. And what ended up happening when delegates were sent in the 13th century, suddenly they were astonished by what had arisen in those hundred years. They, and there are reports of people from the Middle East sending emissaries to Paris and coming back and saying, there are tens of thousands of men devoted to the highest things. And the princes of, you know, of, of Europe at the time were devoting their wealth to chiefly, um, in some sense, useless ends, high ends that were not merely utilitarian. That is the study of wisdom and the praise of God. Um, so what they found is uh, academics and priests um, basically being paid to investigate the highest things. And this was astonishing to them. So for a variety of reasons, um, in those hundred years from the 12th to the 13th century, we find this great cultural flourishing and the medieval university really just sort of represents um, that cultural flourishing. And this is the, this is the world that Thomas Aquinas enters, enters why, into. Why was Aristotle prohibited at Paris among those who were pursuing the highest things? Why were they against Aristotle? Right. Well, in some sense, um, part of this was they wanted Aristotle to be vetted. And he had to kind of go through a testing period. Um, and it's, it's very complicated because Aristotle is being rediscovered in the West after he'd been lost for almost a millennium. And he's being rediscovered in Spain through contact with the Islamic world around the year 1200, more or less. And um, the situation is sort of tricky because for about 100 years, the West had, becoming, had been becoming increasingly aware of Aristotle, but through uh, Islamic thinkers who'd been commenting upon Aristotle. So there was a kind of, there's a bit of a distorted understanding of what Aristotle actually thought. So yeah. there's a little bit of a prejudice against him. And then when he came on the scene, there was a lot, of, there was a kind of conservative position taken. That is, we need our experts to try to figure out what Aristotle himself actually said before we just start teaching him uh, to, to thousands and thousands of students. And we, we don't even know if we're teaching him because we're still trying to figure out what you thought. It's also a period of, of crusades. It's a century of crusades, Larry Arn, which are, of course, uh, very controversial to even discuss. George W. Bush got in trouble for using the term crusade, although Dwight Eisenhower used it in his autobiography, uh, Crusade in Europe. But it is a period of periodic adventuring against the uh, Islamic rulers in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's actually lost forever, uh, to the West in this century, 1244, until Israel is reborn in 1848, I mean 1948. That's right. And, and so there's that, so, you know, the event of the expulsion of the Moors from Spain, of the Islamics from Spain, that's coming much later than this time. And so the, the, the contact and the conflict 
between the Islamic world and the Christian world is very intense and doesn't peak for 300 years, Lee, something like that. So the fall of Constantinople is 1452, if I remember right. The last siege of, of, of Vienna might have been in the 16th century. But Jerusalem is lost in 1244, correct? That's right. So, so this big conflict is going on. And, and Lee's point is the provenance of these works, the source of these works, is an enemy with whom they're at war, religious war. And so it doesn't matter that Farabi and the Arab scholars who recovered these works are not Islamic fundamentalist. They're thinkers and they're brilliant. That 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 has to all be sorted out. What does this mean? It's been lost for a long time. We come back from break. We'll explain what does it mean they recovered these works with uh, Professor Lee Cole, uh, President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. All of this available at hillsdale.edu. All of the dialogues in this series available at hughforhillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America. This week's Hillsdale Dialogue, the first in a series on uh, the doctor of the church, Thomas Aquinas, with uh, president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn, his colleague on the faculty there, Professor Lee Cole. Uh, all of the dialogues available at hughforhillsdale.com. You can go to hillsdale.edu to get the Imprimus uh, speech digest that comes out monthly, completely free, or any of their many online offerings. Hillsdale is the lantern of the north, I call it. It illumines everyone who goes to the website, and you ought to go there. But I am just a mere lawyer, Professor Cole, just a mere lawyer. And I often remind Dr. Arn that he often refers to facts, not in evidence. And so we have to go back and put some facts and evidence. He just referred to the recovery of Aristotle uh, by Islamic scholars. To what operation is he referring for the Steelers fans out there? <laughs> well, as a lawyer, there's a place for you in the kingdom as well. Um, so... Aristotle's works um, are lost in late antiquity to the West, uh, but they're actually preserved within Byzantium. And then from Byzantium, they're inherited by the Islamic world. But what do you mean by, by lost? I mean, physically, what happens to them? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's not completely clear what happens to all of them. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a suggestion not to smoke in libraries or something <laughs> like that. I mean, the, the library fire of Alexandria probably had something to do with this. Um, basically, there were not Aristotelian works in circulation in the West through much of the Middle Ages until the 12th century. Now, to be clear, not every single one of Aristotle's works were lost. We had a few of his logical works, uh, but there weren't many manuscripts um, that were available, and they were kind of tucked away, and people weren't really reading them. And Aristotle exerted a bit of an influence through figures like Boethius, but um, we didn't have primary copies of the metaphysics, of the physics, of the Nicomachean ethics, of the politics, all of those great works that we associate with Aristotle. But the Arabs did. But the Arabs did, and they preserved them. And um, they were quite culturally advanced in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Uh, so in a sense, the, the, the works kind of migrated into Byzantium. They held on to them. The Muslims received them from the east. And then the west seems to receive them again kind of on the other end in Spain, in Spain in around the year 1200. And then we have this period, of course, of... 50 or 60 years where these Aristotelian works are starting to trickle in. And f at first, what we're getting is commentaries upon Aristotle by great Islamic thinkers like Averroes and Avicenna and so on. And then we start getting translations of Aristotle from 
Arabic, sometimes from Arabic into Spanish, into Latin. And then eventually the West starts getting Greek copies. So in the middle of the 13th century, in the 1250s and 60s, we're starting to get Greek copies of Aristotle and then retranslating it into Latin based on those. But then let me copies. do my job, which is uh, to which I'm naturally fitted, which is to ask the dumb basic question. How come the <laughs> Arabs were willing to take Aristotle on face value, translate him, uh, cherish him and comment on him? And yet when he arrives back in uh, in the West roundabout, uh, the church is hostile to him. Uh, Hugh, I had a student ask me this exact same question five hours ago in my medieval philosophy class. Well, I know what my job is. <laughs> so, wait, 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 Lee, was it a freshman? Um, <laughs> soft, I think it was a sophomore. It was probably it's, a visiting high school a, student. Yeah, it's a sophomore, but he's also in seventh, sem- uh, seventh semester Latin, so not your typical sophomore. Well, so I think that that's not quite the best way of putting it because um, – on the surface, we might think the Islamic world was much more friendly to Aristotle because they had him for hundreds of years before we did. But really, uh, it really has more to do with the fact that we just didn't have the texts. So is it the case that we went through decades and decades where we were struggling to know what to do with Aristotle? And that's not a struggle that ever went away. That struggle boils to the surface. I mean, it comes out even in the Reformation again. Uh, But the Islamic world struggled with Aristotle as well. So even though Avicenna considers himself the new Aristotle in the 10th and the beginning of the 11th century, and he loves Aristotle, it's not as the Aristotle had already existed in his culture for a couple of centuries. And his adoption of Aristotle was itself met with some criticism by the likes of Al-Ghazali and other Islamic thinkers. So Islam went through many of the same struggles uh, that the West did in trying to figure out whether Aristotelian philosophy was compatible with uh, a scriptural either uh, notion of the world, whether that be the Quran or the, uh, the and, Hebrew and, and Christian scriptures. And Larry, in the three minutes we have, we'll be back to this next week. I want to do two things. I want to know why that struggle is obvious to some. Why would that be a problem? And then number two, uh, back to Doctor to Professor Cole before we go forward. How do you want people to prepare for next week? So, uh, President R and then Professor Cole. Okay, you may do that now. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, first of all, about that struggle, it's obvious, uh, at least in, in regard to Islam, Muhammad was a conqueror, a general, and a ruler. And the question is, does that those facts and what he wrote indicate that there's a kind of regime with a kind of law to be set up? And if there is such a regime, what is to... What, what is to be the status of other sources of knowledge? In this respect, Muhammad, a prophet, is very different from Jesus, who's regarded as a prophet by the Islamics. Well, Islam had a big fight about that. And the question is, and Farabi and Avicenna and those people, they're very wise men, and they were some of them were centered in Baghdad, and they represented a strain in Islam that is like the strain that supported Thomas Aquinas and Christianity. And over time, that strain has not prevailed yet, you might say. But that doesn't mean it couldn't in the future. And so they're, they're going through that, right? Is it, is it sacrilege to think? Is it, is it uh, blasphemy? to claim knowledge apart from the revelation of God in Scripture and through his prophets. They're fighting about that, right? Well said. Now now we have one minute. Uh, Professor Cole, what do you want people to read for next week? Well, um, 
If you want to get started in Aquinas, I think reading the Chesterton text that you alluded to, the dumb ox, is a, is a great way into Aquinas to, as I said, capture his spirit. And uh, if you can deal with the, uh, what, the luxuriousness of Chesterton's prose and just sort of bathe in it, uh, that'll be an enjoyable experience. Um, you could start reading the Summa, although... I do, even though I said Aquinas has an accessibility as far as philosophers go, I do think that reading Aquinas firsthand uh, does require a bit of guidance. Um, so that's that's tricky. And the Fergus Carr book that I mentioned earlier, which is very accessible, you can get it for 9 or $10, this isn't a plug, but a very short introduction to Thomas Aquinas is for the most part quite quite good and quite insightful. So that's another guide. We'll pick up there next week. Uh, uh, Thank you, Professor Cole. Dr. Arnold will be right back. America conclude this week of the Hugh Hewitt Show.